Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. It is a truth universally acknowledged that many listeners in possession of good taste must be in want of a History Chicks episode about Jane Austen. The end. Let's talk about Jane Austen. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1775, the British are not amused by the rebellious antics of the colonists. Battles ensue. Patrick Henry proclaims, Give me liberty or give me death. And Paul Revere takes a famous ride from Charleston to Lexington. The first abolitionist society in North America organizes in Philadelphia. And let's play a round of six degrees of history chick separation. John Adams graduates from Harvard. Marie Antoinette is five years into her marriage to Louis XVI and still childless. Georgiana is celebrating the first year of marriage to the Duke of Devonshire. George III, Mad King George, Grandpapa to Princess Charlotte is the King of England. Mary Wollstonecraft celebrated her sweet 16. And on December 16, 1775, in Hampshire, England, Jane Austen was born. At last, we've come to the winner in our Season 4 Guaranteed Content Poll. I mean, by a landslide winner. <laughs> some call her a feminist author. Some call her the very first chiclet author. Some people are so obsessed with her that their houses become Regency Con, and they write fan fiction. Some people, like Mark Twain, are so against her that, quote, I wish I could dig her up and beat her with her own shin bone. But, for the purposes of this podcast, to us, she is simply Jane. Neither an icon, nor a revolutionary, but a complex woman, very much of her time and place. And so, as they say, without further ado, we give you Jane Austen. Jane Austen was the seventh child of eight of the Reverend George Austen and Cassandra Lee Austen in the village of Steventon, Hampshire, in England. They had met in Bath, which was like the Match.com of the time. It's where you went to find a mate and drink some fairly nasty water. <laughs> he was the rector of Steventon Parish, and he had been given this living, as they call it, the post, by a second cousin. Do you know any of your second cousins? No. It seems to me that they are much more in tune with the levels of cousinage than we are today. Oh, yeah, that's true. So her family was slightly higher in the social scale. In fact, one member of her family was the master of the oldest college at Oxford. And that's not a position you get if you're a peasant, for sure. And some of her family had married into the aristocracy, the nobility. Mm -hmm. There were titled people in her family. So this was kind of a catch for him, a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he was highly educated. He wasn't a dumb man. He was very pleasant. I'm sure he was a catch for her in some regards, too. He earned about 200 pounds annually, which adjusted for modern times, about 26000 a year. Ouch. That's not awesome. But they did supplement by his wife's work with chickens. Always with the chickens, ladies. <laughs> Always with the chickens. Um, and produce, etc. So she was a very good manager. To help supplement their income, he turned the parsonage into a boys' boarding school. So in addition to the children that they were going to have, they had other people's children in their house as well. This kind of school was called a crammer. They were taken there to, it was like an extensive tutoring, mm -hmm. like a one-on-one, -on -one, lots of time, um, to prepare the boys to enter college, which at this time you could go at 12. As soon as you reach the proper academic mm -hmm. achievement, 
you go. Mr. Austin went at 16, his oldest son went at 14, and some of his students went at 12. That's astonishing to me. Yeah, me too. Although I, I did just recently read that if you homeschool, you can enter college at like 14. Anyway, the Austins had a houseful, no matter when anybody left. In rather fast order, first came James, and then a year later, George. A year after that, Edward, then three years, Henry, Cassandra, Francis, finally Jane, and then four years later, finally Charles. That's eight children in 14 years. That's a lot of babies. I will tell you, though, when the babies were born, Mama breastfed them for just a teeny bit of time, and then... They scuttled away to the village to remain with a village woman. <laughs> they said when they were still vegetables, they went away. And when they became animals, they came back. So they're gone. I mean, Jane nursed for like three months. And then she was sent off and didn't come back until she was like 18 months old. So she's a toddler. No, they were close enough to visit every day. Yeah. Accounts said that one or other of the parents visited those exiled children every single day. So it's not like they were away, never saw these people, and then all of a sudden got shoved back at them at 18 months. Right. I mean, it was almost like they had two families right. that loved them, kind of. Yeah, which can't be bad. No, I thought that was kind of, you know, takes a village, literally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, maybe it's what they can uh, second son, George, had some type of mental illness, and he really never came back to live with the family. He stayed living with the wet nurse family for his entire life, supplemented financially, of course, by the Austins. From all accounts, though, they were a very happy family. They were good parents, both of them. Um, Papa was a clergyman, yes, but he was, in fact, a farmer, with all the cares you can imagine from a farmer. Um, he did like to show them things under a microscope and be <laughs> scientific man and, you know, take them on the farm and show them the animals and things. Um, Mama had the poultry in the garden and running a small hotel, frankly. <laughs> With a lot of young children. Where the guests never left. You know, we, we think a lot of times of these, you know, Jane Austen of the more opulent homes. This wasn't one of them that they lived in. It was, it was tidy. But it was very sparsely furnished, white walls and exposed beams. It's, think simple rather than opulent. They ran this whole operation, though, like a large family. They didn't take so many students. The boys were just more brothers, really. Mm -hmm. All those boys around and those two little girls. One of their favorite games was to get a big old tablecloth, and the girls would sit on it at the top of the stairs, and two boys would pull on it as hard as they could, and the little girls would go flying down the stairs. Can we get the babies some helmets? <laughs> this is not a good plan. Not even on a mattress. It's on a table. Or a cookie pan. <laughs> but fun. Totally fun, I guess. But they encouraged their children and let them be individuals, which was, I just think that's got to be rare for the time. Didn't try to force them this way or that. And maybe it's because their papa grew up without a family. Mm -hmm. Really, he was kind of shoved from relative to relative, and maybe he really looked around and enjoyed the hubbub for yeah. hubbub it was. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Actually, kind of I, to do our six degrees of separation again, it kind of reminded me a lot of the way Elizabeth Cady Stanton raised her kids. It's kind of a free, open education, very Montessori-like learning system. Cassandra and Jane, being the only two girls, became the closest of friends from a very, very, very early age. In fact, when she was born, three days after her father gave a sermon about those 
Americans that were rebelling against their <laughs> precious king, by the way. That's what happened, yeah. placed in history right before Jane was born. Yeah. He said, she's to be called Jenny, and she's a companion for Cassie. They were allowed to roam all over the place. They used to roll down hills, which we all have done until we're sick, I'm sure. There's a whole village and a big barn to play in. Frank and Cassandra and Jane, considered too young for much school, were free as little birdies. I'm nostalgic for their childhood, and I didn't even have it. Um, Frank, by the way, was a little pistol. He bought himself his own pony when he was six or seven and took off riding. He demanded that his mother make him a riding habit, which she cut down her own riding hat. Like, when am I going? Right? <laughs> so she cut down her own riding habit and made it for him. And I can just see he he is such an interesting little character. From very, very early on, he knew what he wanted, he demanded it, and he mostly got it. Jane, not being as aggressive as him, and as many younger children do, became kind of a comedian. I have a friend who's an eighth child who can tell me that if you weren't funny at the dinner table, ain't nobody listening to you. <laughs> that's right. And so that's where Jane got her sarcastic, perhaps, her witty nature mm-hmm. from having to pipe up or be forgotten. But all of this happy hubbub, free as birdies life came to a screeching halt when Jane was seven. At that point, Cassandra was ready to go off to school. But Jane and Cassandra were so close that Jane wasn't about to let it happen without her. So she insisted that she go too, even though she was still a little young. Anyway, there's no sense these girls growing up amongst all these hooligans. And, hey, we can rent out their room for another paying guest to kind of make up some of the cost. So the parents scraped together money, because remember, they don't have a really large income here, to send the girls off to school. Now, the schools at the time were not exactly great. And a lot of times the parents didn't realize what their kids were getting into, that they were going to be crammed into beds and not see the outside for days. Starved. Frozen. Mm-hmm. Very rough, very meager conditions. But off they went with their cousin, Jane Cooper, to Miss Colley's school in Oxford. Stuck in town, for a little girl who had freedom in her blood, she was quickly very bummed out. And it's hard to say what, if anything, Jane learned of academic note during her first school experience. Um, Anyone who's read Jane Eyre can imagine the worst of it. Um, Maybe scanty food and ineffective teaching, perhaps well-intentioned but half-hearted lessons, but whatever it was, it did not last very long. That summer, Mrs. Colley took the girls on a field trip and exposed them to putrid fever. We've talked about that before. It was either typhoid or diphtheria. She took them to Southampton for the scenery, but it was a port town. And all these boats are coming in from all over the freaking place, bringing who knows what amount of disease. With a lot of people in the same yeah. area. I mean, it's a, just a <laughs> epidemic waiting to happen. It's not a good plan. <laughs> And all three girls did become sick with it. Mrs. Colley forbid the girls to send letters home, so their parents were ignorant until Cousin Jane finally snuck a letter out to her mother. When the mothers, Mrs. Cooper and Mama Cassandra, got the letters, they immediately went to fetch the girls. But unfortunately, Mrs. Cooper caught the fever, and she died later. I know, that's a consequence. But I will say, Jane Cooper probably saved Jane Austen's life, because when they got there, Jane Austen was almost dead. Yeah. So goodbye, Mrs. Colley. Thanks for that. Uh, After about a a year of recovery and self-education and further hooliganism. (laughs) They were sent off again to another school. This one, at least with a better reputation in a garden, run by this dramatic personage who named herself Madame La Tournelle, who had an inexplicable cork leg. And her real name was Sarah Hackett. (laughs) 
I mean, some of these little vignettes in Jane's life sound like they could be a full Jane Austen or Bronte sisters novel. I know. You know, but even this one, it's, imagine this very dramatic woman who really doesn't want to teach the kids anything, and she's not really qualified. She does have sub-teachers that help her, but all she wants to do is gossip about the actors and the theater. She did put on a lot of plays, though. She loved that. Yes. But otherwise, it was French needlework. Reading, writing, dancing, and piano extra. Here's the thing, though. A student that went there later said, as long as you showed up the first hour and a half when the men teachers were there, uh-huh. I quote, no human being ever took the trouble to inquire where we spent our days. We lounged about the garden and hung out the windows. Wandering and gossiping, honestly, all day sounds so boring to me. It sounds boring, but is it perhaps in some way making them ready to enter society? Oh, where there's nothing to do but hang out the windows and walk in the garden and gossip. Once again, though, this didn't last that long. Perhaps Papa ran out of money. Perhaps a visiting relative told him, you know those girls aren't learning anything. Perhaps Madame upped the tuition. Well, Jane Austen and her sister came home, and we can say finito to her formal education, such as it was. And it left a very bitter taste in her mouth. This is paraphrased, but she said that schools were places where young ladies for enormous pay might be screwed out of health and into vanity. Yeah, she you can see it all over her writing. Schools were ridiculous places. They made girls sick or silly. Teachers were ignorant. Or she would say things like, I would rather marry a man I didn't love than ever be a teacher in a school. Mm-hmm. Even Mrs. Goddard's school in Emma, which is... A lot nicer is described only in contrast to ridiculous schools, you know, as being so above the norm that actually people had food. Imagine that. I know. So you see, even from the age of seven and eight, Jane Austen was storing up material, observing, filing it away. Here's some more material. Jane's back from school and there's a visitor. A visitor who is so exotic, her cousin, the Comtesse Capot de Fouillide, whose name is so hard to say. I hope you both forgive us if we call her Eliza. <laughs> cousin Eliza. She came by quite often, and she was the daughter of Papa's sister, Philadelphia, who had found herself a wealthy husband in the West Indies. Okay, here's Eliza, who had literally been dancing in the same room with Marie Antoinette and could describe her outfits. Eliza, who saw Mr. Blanchard's balloon ascension at Versailles. She had been to All Max. She'd done the season in London. She thought Blenheim Palace was very shabby. <laughs> what was this that has come into the house? Jane's brother's role. Oh, and Eliza was quite the flirt with them as well. Because, I mean, she had, I'm sure, no intention of marrying them, but... It was a social skill that she possessed, and she certainly used it whenever she could. Eliza's story arc actually is very interesting. And again, all these little stories that Jane could have written about, but Eliza eventually marries a French nobleman, comes back to England to give birth to their child. Ultimately, the French nobleman loses his head about the same time that Marie Antoinette loses hers, and Eliza eventually marries one of the Austin brothers. How's that for a nice little story arc? Although she'd been proposed to by a different brother. Very complicated. (laughs) Now, wouldn't you think some of that would have made its way in? Maybe later it would have. Um, Writing ran in the family. Her mother, perhaps if she'd had less children or more money, might have made quite a great 
stab at it, really. Um, her poetry was really witty, and the whole family loved it when Mama would dash off a poem and read it to them. It was full of sarcasm and comedy. Brother James actually produced a weekly magazine called The Loiterer, and he wrote plays for the family to act, and Henry contributed to the magazine as well. But it was Jane who had the true passion for writing. She was always at it. And uh, many of her early stories are full of drama and crime and chaos and people faint and are robbed and are drunk and there are natural children and carriage crashes and all manner of shocking content and her father appreciated her work some fathers would have thrown all that crap into fire <laughs> but not hers no it was part of her education and it was part of her personality because just like earlier we had said that when she made a witty comment it got laughed at when she presented her little vignettes and her little tiny plays and her short stories the family loved them. She was a very precocious reader. In fact, she was puzzling over pretty hard books in her papa's library from about the age of five. And he let her read anything she wanted out of his library, even Fielding's Tom Jones, which some girls were forbidden to read until they were married. <laughs> and if you can find anything in there with a fine tooth comb to shock you in this day and age, I'll be surprised. But at the time, it was like Fifty Shades of Grey. You might have read it under the covers, but you, you know. Um, voracious readers generally make good writers. Her favorite book is called Sir Charles Grandview by an author named Samuel Richardson, and it is 800,000 words long. In contrast, the largest Harry Potter book, you know the one, Order of the Phoenix, that fat one, you're like, mm, are we really reading this at that time? That fat one is only 250,000 words. Even War and Peace, that's known for its heaviness and heft, is only 500,000. So there's a commitment to reading that you don't see these days. That commitment, that's, that's like a marriage, that's like a whole relationship. <laughs> My goodness. But you can see a lot of themes in this book that you'll see later. Women being helpless pawns or powerful figures depending on fortune and the strength of their own characters, love, marriages, family strife. Charlotte Grandison, one of the sisters of the gentleman of the title, is often thought to be a prototype for Elizabeth Bennet, in fact, of Pride and Prejudice. She wrote some works that she had bound into three volumes, collectively known as the Juvenilia. And she wrote these from about age 11 to about 18. And again, it was the short stories, the dramatic scenes, and a very entertaining history of England. I love it. I do too. <laughs> I like, there's a part, I'm not going to quote it because I don't have it in front of me, but um, she questions, does Lady Jane Grey really read Greek or is she just trying to impress people? Like, I think she's pretending. It's not very long. And you can get it at LibriVox.org for free and listen to it. But it's pretty cute. And you can hear in the controversial movie adaptation of Mansfield Park, you can hear little sections of two works in particular, Love and Friendship and The History of England. Like, the part where she says they took interns fainting until one of them fell out the window. That's from Love and Friendship. And then... Um, she talks about Elizabeth being a wicked queen. And she turns Elizabeth into the villain. Yeah. I love it. And actually, even the title, they read this in that, in that movie, too. The title of it was, A History of England from the Reign of Henry IV to the Death of Charles I by a Partial Prejudiced and Ignorant Historian. Cassandra illustrated it, her sister. Cassandra was a really good drawer, <laughs> watercolorist, <laughs> except for when it came to drawing her sister. <laughs> and really, the only, there is... You go, oh, where's, what does Jane Austen look like? Mm. No one knows exactly. The only verified picture of her is one that Cassandra drew, and relatives said it didn't really resemble her at all. She looks dour and sour-faced. 
and just kind of slumped in a chair, like, and that's it. There's a silhouette that appeared in one of the books, which many people think might have been Jane, and a composite drawings have been made of her, but an actual resemblance of her, we don't have it. She was tall, on the tall side. Mm -hmm. She was spare, as they say. She had dark, curling hair and eyes that were not blue, but were in fact probably hazel or gray. Mm -hmm. Lots of people described her, especially as a young woman, as very pretty and vivacious, sparkling and joyous. So that is a big contrast to how we usually picture her. And at 14, some chicks moved into the neighborhood, a family of Lloyds, three young ladies with the unfortunate name of Big. And you shouldn't picture Jane Austen sacrificing all sunlight and free time to her pen and her paper. She and her gang did what any group of 14-year-old girls can be expected to do. Gossip. Laugh. Go shopping. Dance. Talk about clothes. Talk about the young men of the neighborhood. Most of them Jane had known since childhood. As a matter of fact, when Jane was 16, her sister Cassandra became engaged to a young man who had acted with them in some of their plays back at the rectory. His name was Tom Fall, and he was a minister, but he didn't have a lot of money, so they were going to have to wait to get married. This is another story arc that she could have turned into a novel easily, but at this point, Cassandra knows what love feels like. Jane doesn't, but she would go into the, the rectory and write in the registry things like, Henry Frederick Howard Fitzwilliam of London and Jane Austen of Steventon in the registry. And Papa never scratched them out. It was part of the record of the church. These <laughs> fake marriages that she had herself in, very romanticized, but she's, you know, she's a teenager. There was no thought in the country of being out or not out. This was not London, and dancing was kind of the main form of entertainment. Jane Austen is described at this time by a neighbor as, quote, the prettiest, silliest, most affected, husband-hunting butterfly. Well, doesn't that just dash your image of Jane Austen? <laughs> well, little did they know, these neighbors, all kinds of neighbors, too, members of parliament and doctors and clergymen and assorted aristocrats of old and new title, little did they know that... Jane would go home and write, Everyone is surrounded by a neighborhood of voluntary spies. With this little frivolous butterfly of a secret note-taker among them, I might say, <laughs> rich food, rich food for character development, which many say is Jane Austen's greatest strength. And she got really good diversity at these dances. She made one foray into the dark side of female character. Lady Susan is about a predatory, scheming, pretty heartless aristocrat. If you've read Dangerous Liaisons or seen the Glenn Close movie, which I highly recommend, if you have no children in the room, you'll see this type of thing. Not as off-color, certainly, with people popping in and out of beds. That's not where we are. But maybe, maybe Cousin Eliza had either given her this book or told her about it, because the similarities are interesting. But no one was going to stop her from reading it, as saucy as it was. So who knows? Maybe she did have it in the library. Maybe. Lady Susan wasn't published during her lifetime, um, but nobody burnt it either. It was published in 1871. That's quite a bit after Jane Austen was gone. So Lady Susan's notions of love and husbands and etc. were all made up out of imagination and her reading of all those lurid novels. But one holiday season... When Jane was about 20, she was introduced to Tom Lefoy. He was tall, blonde, smart, and very handsome. And Tom and Jane took a shine to one another immediately. They broke 
few societal rules which raised the eyebrows of the adults in the room. She wrote to Cassandra in the letter. This is this just tells you like what a giddy schoolgirl kind of thing it was going on. Imagine everything most profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together. They danced too many dances together, and they were sitting together in an illuminated greenhouse. Woo, that's man. Might as well be a van with carpet in the back. You know, for someone who's <laughs> wondered what it was like to feel this, and it, that's very romantic. It is very romantic. <laughs> Even now, an illuminated greenhouse. We... I know, that sounds charming. I'm reminded of Marianne in Pride and Prejudice. She literally did not care who saw her or teased her. Everyone there had known her forever, seriously, and I think she was just like, this is going to happen. I only hope they were understanding, and I kind of think they were, but even one of her brother's friends was kind of mischievous, and he kind of presented her gravely with a piece of paper, and on it was a cartoon of Tom LaFroy. This was out. This news, Mr. Comedy probably got a smack, because he's a brother, as far as she's concerned, but... As far as Tom's concerned, who knows? His family warned him off. He was an oldest brother with a lot of sisters and, you know, a responsibility to marry money, really, of which Jane had none. Um, Later, as an old man, he said he'd been in love with her. Um, There were likely kisses, maybe. Maybe. Maybe they held hands and mild excitements of that nature. I know. That could be enough, especially young love. He remembered it as a boyish love. Now, I say this as somebody who married her husband after only knowing him six months. I'm not sure how much there was there from his side. He's clearly smitten, but his family was not smitten, like you were saying. They shipped him off to London post-haste. But they didn't ship him off angry at Jane. They shipped him off, there's a quote from his aunt, that she was angry at him for, quote, behaving so ill to Jane. And so kind of the thought around the Gossip Patrol was that Jane had taken this for serious romance, and perhaps he was just a Mac. Oh. Like, they were mad at him. Mm-hmm. They they weren't like, get away from that dirty woman. No. They were mad at him. Like, seriously? You're going to come into my hood, <laughs> and you're going to embarrass us in this way. And when I reread Mansfield Park, I was reminded of Mr. Crawford and his game of kind of making people fall in love with him for his own amusement because he was bored. Oh. And I would hope Tom is not this bad. But I see the seeds. But regardless, they never saw each other again. No, they didn't. Although he married, he had a big family, he served in Parliament, he was named the Chief Justice of Ireland. So Jane was kind of bewildered by what had just happened, I think, and she retreated to her writing as her best comfort and her best friend. Papa had decided he was all done keeping students. And so the house, for kind of the first time in Jane's life, was relatively quiet. There were four adults in the house, Jane, Mama, Papa, Cassandra, and a little niece. And so there was time to really sit down for the first time and kind of make a serious go at something. Right, and Cassandra traveled quite a bit without Jane there. There was letters back and forth. So Jane did have the time, and as a writer, that's what she's going to use it for. She began a novel in letter form, which was very popular at the time. Unfortunately, it only gives the point of view of the letter writers. You can't have the whole vision like you can in a narrative story. But she began a novel in letter form called Eleanor and Marianne, which later will become Sense and Sensibility. And began and finished an entirely new book called First Impressions, which her family was delighted to hear right around the fire. We'll talk more about the specifics of the novels themselves in a future podcast and their long roads to publication in almost every case. But let's just say that Papa was so impressed 
with first impressions that he kind of on the DL on the side offered it to a publisher who basically returned it unopened. Sadly, for that publisher, that book is going to become Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) (laughs) So, sucks to be him. Yeah. Papa and Mama were very supportive of her writing. Uh, Left to her own devices a lot, and she was kind of allowed to go blank and dash away. And that was kind of a weird behavior, but she, you know, she she got an idea, and she would just, like, stare off into space and then just wander out of the room. But people were like, oh, that's just, that's genius burning. Well, I don't have the genius, but I understand. It's like, it obsesses your brain. It fills your brain. And you can't think of anything else until you vomit it onto paper or a keyboard. So at this time, she also begins another novel named Susan. Now, I think it's very interesting that at this point, she's had two novels with the name of Susan. And yet, where's the Susan? Where is she? (laughs) She also names a character in um, Mansfield Park, Susan. The sister, the beloved younger sister, Susan, too. She must just love that name. You know, when I was little, I loved the name Sierra. I don't know anybody named Sierra. Oh. But when I was little, that was like my obsession. And had I written novels, I bet I would have had a bunch of Sierras. Now I'm sort of becoming a little Janeite-istic here. (laughs) But I wonder where she heard the name Susan. I don't know who it was. I mean, you see a lot of the names of the people that dotted her life in her stories. So she was allowed to be a bit of an eccentric at home, and that habit didn't serve her so well. When she went to her rich relatives in Kent, her brother had inherited a fortune from some people who had basically adopted him at the age of 12, and he had come into his estates. His guests were aristocrats. His guests were people of fashion, people connected to royalty, in fact. And that place, I'm sorry to say, was where she was viewed as Bit of a rough diamond. <laughs> a little talent went a long way, they thought, and this is way too much, quote, talent for us. She was described as someone who'd been brought up in the country with this complete ignorance of the world and its ways. They are below par as to good society, not as refined as she ought to have been. In fact, she was described as a poker or some other thin piece of furniture. Like, it's Elizabeth Bennet versus the Bingley sisters. What do you say when somebody's going to snoot you that badly? Even the hairdresser, a servant, openly reduced his prices for her. That seems very condescending to me. A little bit. I mean, thanks for the discount and everything. But, like, in front of people, you're going to be like, but for you. I'll take welfare. Since you can't afford it. Yeah, not cool. No. So they were friendly enough, but with this big layer of condescension. And I can kind of see her... Shutting up. And being odd is a great defense, I think. Being unusual. Being herself mm-hmm. to a, a greater degree. Almost. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, don't we all do that in some regards? When we're uncomfortable in a situation, we take the little bits of us that we are comfortable with and expand upon them, even yeah. if they don't fit. So she ends up being a person who's sarcastic and not taking any of their crap, which I'm sure went over really well. I know. We love that from over here, but the house guests probably not so much. (laughs) About this time, Cassandra, now remember she's engaged, her betrothed, Tom, joined the army. The idea was he's going to be a minister and make some money so that they could marry. But he caught the yellow fever and died. Oh, three months it took to get the information back to Cassandra, who was heartbroken. It wasn't that she just threw herself on her bed and got it out of her system and then went back and realized what she had to do. No, 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 no. 
She donned the garb of a middle-aged woman and called herself a spinster from there on out. Yeah, she descended kind of into being useful. You know, being useful to Jane, being useful to all her relations, attending at the numerous births of all her sisters-in-law. Really kind of a turning point for both girls. I mean, Cassandra was not going to get married. Jane might have still had hopes of perhaps having children of her own in an establishment. Now, here you are, 25 years old. You've finished three novels that not only you're proud of, but your family is, too. You've got Eleanor and Marianne, First Impressions, and... Susan, which later becomes Northanger Abbey. Ask Susan how hard it is to get one done you're willing to show anyone. Ask this Susan. Oh, exactly. And, and she's got it. She's got three, and she's carrying them around with her everywhere so that she can work on them. It, this is her treasure. I don't blame her. So, I have mine on several thumb drives <laughs> and a clock and two computers. <laughs> So all seems set for more success in that realm. You know, she's kind of withdrawing from society, becoming a little more introverted, perhaps, than she had been known to be, wearing clothes that she now describes as, oh, they're useful and happy to go any place. That's, <laughs> not that's not the social butterfly we knew a Those are yoga ago. pants right there. Oh, yoga pants, yep. Yep. Yeah, she was very sarcastic about fashion, pretty much the whole, from now on. She wrote to Cassandra this very dry little note that said, Next week, I shall begin operations on my hat, on which you know my principal hopes of happiness depend. And she also would say things like, It seems more natural to me that flowers grow out of your head than fruit. Like, she did not care. (laughs) She is so sarcastic and awesome. So all seemed propitious for future efforts. In novel writing and sarcastic letter writing and growing more into yourself, really. You know, becoming a kooky eccentric. Sounds good to me. But then one day, out of the clear blue sky, with no apparent warning, Mama and Papa came home and literally dropped a bomb on Jane. Well, girls were giving up Steventon and moving to Bath in a month or two. Papa was 70. I mean, it was a good age for him to retire. It's time for him to turn the parsonage over to Jane's brother, James, and it was it. (laughs) Purportedly, Jane fainted. Yeah, some authors think that she is not of the character to faint, (laughs) and there is some evidence to suggest that she went upstairs and wrote letters of such great rage that the paper was full of holes when it made it to Cassandra, and evidently those letters were too hot to survive because they got burnt before Cassandra got back. There's a there's a gap, shall yeah, we say. There's a huge gap. In the of, correspondence. I mean, in, of this time that Jane would have had something to say, and she probably did. So now, while the stagehands shift the scenery to the fabulous resort town of Bath, let us take a little break and leave Jane in her pain and devastation for just about 30 seconds. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 100,000 titles for you to choose from. For you, the listeners of the History Chicks, Audible is offering a free download so you can try out their service. To go along with this episode, we recommend Bridget Jones' Diary by Helen Fielding, which is actually based on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. It's the tale of a 30-something singleton and her Darcy, and the hijinks that ensue. We love Bridget almost as much as we love Lizzie Bennet. Almost. 
To receive your free audiobook download today, please visit audible.com slash thehistorychicks or simply follow the link on our website, thehistorychicks.com. So here we are. We've given up Steventon. We're moving to Bath. Very unwelcome move that it is. The new rector, her brother James, and his wife descended to look over the furniture. Papa was selling most of the library. They got rid of Jane's piano. Pack up your crap, ladies. We out. You would not do that to an eight-year-old, would you? Which tells you how unmarried daughters were regarded, kind of, doesn't it? Even by these more enlightened parents. But Mama and Papa were in their 70s. They thought it was time to please themselves. And in this respect... Jane and Cassandra really were, what do I say, burdens or luggage? I mean, anyway. They had no option. No, it was all decided. But to say Jane was distressed was the mildest possible word. Depressed, maybe even. Well, adding to her depression is that she had been to Bath before. She had gone with her brother Edward, you know, the wealthy one, and his wife. It's Bath was a resort town. It seems like a really great place to go. You'd go there and you'd drink the mineral water, which was supposed to cure everything that ailed you. I can only imagine it's full of sulfur, which makes me feel like working. Okay, on Super Sizers Go Regency episode, they drink from the water. Highly recommend all Super Sizers Go episodes. Oh, highly. This one especially, it yeah. was fantastic. They could have been drinking from the same fountain that Jane did. But anyway, it was a big thing to do. There was public gardens, there was Roman ruins, there was dances and concerts and plays, there was doctors. This is where I start quacking. Quack, quack. (laughs) (laughs) But Jane was not a fan. When she had gone before with her brother, she had taken notes to start a humorous novel about a woman with a vivid imagination who reads a lot of gothic novels set in Bath. That was all that Jane got out of it is that she got these notes for a novel that would eventually become Northanger Abbey. That's it. So going back there? I mean, sure, you can go in the bathing machines, and that's kind of cool, but you spend all this time getting ready, and the big, strong Amazon woman dunks you three times, and you're done. There's no swimming. You don't lay on the beach and put suntan oil and listen to your radio. Take a nap. You go there. You get dunked three times. You get in this dark machine with no window, you put your clothes back on as best you can, and you go home. That sounds totally fine. And sure enough, you could go for a walk on the pavement, but you'd be surrounded by people. And Jane's used to walking most of her life. As a young person, she walked up to six miles a day in the countryside. Now, if that's not meditation, I don't know what is. And she's deprived of all solace here in Bath. So, as you can imagine, the writing came to a crashing halt. Even worse, Bath became kind of a springboard for little trips and visits here and there. Her parents, for the most part, were in their element. But the rootlessness really bothered Jane a lot. She felt like she didn't have a home anywhere. Jane actually said that Bath was vapor, shadow, smoke, and confusion. Wow, that sounds really relaxing. And there may have been one high spot where Jane may have met a mysterious man who may have been ready to propose, and he may have died, which in and of itself is another little story that she could certainly expand upon, but... Nobody knows if that man was smoke and vapor as well. That's right. (laughs) 
So they were invited to stay near Steventon with their old friends. Remember the chicks that moved to town? The Biggs girls. That must have been a tiny slice of nostalgia and a, like, gets me out of here. They were back in their old stomping grounds for ball season and the holidays. There was much to anticipate. And again, these aren't visits like, let's go for a long weekend. These are, like, weeks of visits. And there were grand plans. I mean, and they were so excited. to. I can just imagine. They were so happy to be in familiar places again. But there was a wrench put in the works. On December 2nd, i.e. well at the beginning of all these plans, the Biggs girl's younger brother Harris proposed to Jane Austen. He was five years younger than she, tall, strong, a little introverted, maybe a little dim, but... Maybe he thought that someone he'd known all his life was a good bet, and I'm sure the sisters put some pressure on him. Well, Jane accepted his proposal. She was to be the mistress of a grand house almost as good as her rich brother in Kent. Maybe they wouldn't have the flower-arranging servant. Maybe not. But you could have the six to seven housemates. Easily. You could have coachmen and carriages. She would be near home, amongst friends, with a husband she liked, and... I don't know about respected, but she liked him. He was a nice man. She loved his sisters. Mm-hmm. Very familiar with his family. She'd be able to help her brothers in their various pursuits. She would be a patroness to her nephews and her nieces. She could have children of her own and provide a secure home and future for Cassandra, her right. bosom friend, and her mama and papa. They would have no more worries after this match. On paper, it looked really good. The pro column was really long. The con column didn't have too many items in it. Yeah, it was the most rational thing to do. You know, really the most understandable thing to do. And she did it for a whole night. (laughs) Yeah, she repented overnight. I imagine it was a really sleepless night. And she let him down as gently as possible. Was it a determination to find real love? Was it fear of childbirth? Was it... Did she think she was settling, which was a common thing to do at the time? I mean, we now we go, oh, I don't want to settle. But back then, you had to. It was a, it was a life skill. <laughs> or was it, which I've got to give her credit for, the realization that if I marry him and produce delightful, fat, big withers babies, one after the other, I won't have any time to pursue my writing, which is my real passion. Perhaps. So the next morning, she declined. And gave up the chance to have a big, fat Regency wedding. (laughs) (laughs) She went to her old house as fast as she could get there and demanded that her brother James, the new incumbent, take her back to Bath. Now, he grumblingly escorted them back, not getting an explanation, really, until... They were all back and had talked it over. Poor thing. Just some bewildered dude angrily driving his carriage back. Whatever. Okay. Can you imagine the mom? Mama was the last (laughs) to come around. I will tell you that right now. Um, Papa understood kind of like Lizzie Bennet's father did. Right. Um, But Mama, when faced with a lottery win of such magnitude, was not so resigned to letting it go so easily. So there was grumpiness. That opportunity is not going to come around again. But eventually, she came from the dark side. (laughs) But I can only imagine. So Jane, fresh from her new romantic entanglements, took up her books again. It seemed to be quite a comfort to her. Her brother Henry, 
He's such a loose cannon, but he's so charming. You have to forgive him. But her brother Henry declared himself her agent and actually sold Northanger Abbey, well, at the time, Susan, to a publisher that advertised it coming and then did nothing. So that is another bitter disappointment. Yeah, it got filed. I know, bummer. But she sold something. Ten whole pounds. <laughs> Woo! I mean, that first time you get paid for your writing. True. I mean, that doesn't matter how much they pay you. Trust me on this. <laughs> the sweetest paycheck you ever get. Although it would be sweeter if there was actually a book. <laughs> True. She started a new novel called The Watsons. And the basic story is of a family of clergymen's daughters who are freaking out about what will happen to them once their father dies, since they will have no home and no income. It's pretty bleak, and it's pretty close to home. Um, it's never finished. There's lots of completions by other people that have been published, but she never finished it. And then something that they knew was going to happen at some point happened. Papa fell ill. They tried some treatments for him, which <sighs> cupping really doesn't cure anything. And he died. And with him, most of their money, too. Mama had a little tiny legacy, and Cassandra still had her Tom Falls legacy, and Jane had zero. Zero money. Brothers, some of them, pitched in to the tune of about 250 pounds a year, which is 32000 a year. Respectable enough. Sure, and if you think about it, they were raising the whole family on 26000 mm-hmm. back in the day, but... Well, these women were completely, at this point, dependent on the goodwill of male relations. They would have to take whatever was decided for them. I am pretty irritated at Edward, by the way. Uh, he was known uh, yeah. to pay 60 pounds out of petty cash, out of pocket change, for a pair of carriage horses, but he couldn't parlay any portion of this to help them out in some kind of substantial manner. It just kills me. It took him a while. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, he comes around, but at this point, they're moving. They're still in Bath, and they're moving to lesser desirable quarters. It's, you know, going down and down. It's not just one move, it's it's a few moves. And it did take Edward a while, but finally it occurred to him, hey, I have all this property. I wonder if they might want to live in one of them. Doy, as my eight-year-old says, <laughs> doy. So he gave them a choice. They chose Chawton Cottage, which was by Edward's estate, which was Chawton House. It was a charming six-bedroom, two-parlor cottage. Cassandra and Jane chose to share a room. I love how touching that is. Right, um, it was a six-bedroom house. Yeah, and they didn't have to. No. A family friend named Martha Lloyd moved in with them. Um, kind of a relation, as her sister had become James's second wife. And she was part of the girl gang. Yeah. From before. There was a really good rhythm established at this house, I think. Martha and Cassandra handled all the housework, except for they hired a cook for eight pounds a year. Probably two maids, which Jane snobbily called upper and scrub. (laughs) Jane's only responsibility was breakfast. And since these ladies didn't have a big old cooked breakfast, she had to make tea and toast. And for some inexplicable reason, she had the key to the wine cabinet. That was her only other household responsibility. Like, everyone else couldn't be trusted with it. It's like, well, why was it even locked up? Well, I guess for the servants? I don't know. Like, your bar is wide open here. But I haven't got upper and scrub to worry about. That's true. <laughs> so, Mama took off. Free at last, free at last. Hallelujah. She put on a peasant gown that no respectable lady would be seen in at this time. She loved it. 
threw it on, got herself out there, dug in the mud, dug up her own potatoes, puttering around in the dirt, happy as a clam. You know, I have a group of girlfriends, and we always talk about someday we're going to live in our intentional community, and we, like, divide up the chores. That's what, like, I'll cook, I'll garden, I like to clean, you know, whatever everybody's thing is. That's what they were doing. Yeah. But at last, at long last, Jane was at home. She was. She would get up early and practice her piano for a couple of hours. Then she'd make everyone breakfast. And then finally, when everything was cleared off and nieces and nephews and mothers and sisters and friends were all taken care of, she would work at a very small table and write. She was writing again. Hooray! Yeah. Everyone. Sounds like a really great existence, actually. I know. It's kind of funny because Mama would look up and see Jane writing at the window. And I had read it. One author said, any other parent engaged in hard labor, looking up and seeing an able-bodied child with two working hands sitting at a window would demand they come help. But instead, they just waved at each other and kept going with what they were doing. It was good. It was a community. It really It was nice. So Cassandra was also so supportive, and she would kind of insist on a quiet way of the house. Even if there were nieces and nephews, there were periods of time, then it was just, it's to be low. It's to go outside. Aunt Jane is writing. She was very protective of well, Jane's time. Well, sure. So hooray! So she started revising. She started writing. She tried to buy back Susan from the publisher, but he wanted the 10 pounds in exchange. This was a novel that hadn't been printed. And she's like, I don't have any money. So she offered another book that she has. And he said, oh, I, you're an unknown author. I can't really do that unless you pay for costs. So, again, she's faced with this money dilemma. And she has none of her own. But Brother Henry and Eliza forked over the cash. And finally, she was published. It was supposed to come out at the beginning of the summer. And I can just imagine, like, every day you think, I'm getting the news, I'm getting the news, I'm getting the news. Okay, this guy didn't even publish until, what was it, October. October. Uh, But she was able to go to London and read the proofs herself. She was a very hands-on author. It wasn't like she just shipped it off and let somebody else handle it. She wanted to see the process. She wanted to be a part of it. And it was published in three volumes. And that, my friends, is a little work called Sense and Sensibility. It was advertised as a new novel by Lady A. Okay, that's Mysterioso. That got some attention. The, uh, the first edition of around a thousand copies started to go out notably among the influential. Remember, in the Princess Charlotte minicast, Princess, that's, that's pretty much as high as you can go in the social echelon of um, Britain. Yes. Princess Charlotte mentioned that she enjoyed this book immensely and said she was Marianne, but not as good. The Duchess of Devonshire's sister, Harriet, Lady Bessborough, loved it and passed it through the fashionable court circles. Although, to her credit, she hated the ending, as many of us do. Feeling that Marianne should not be thrown away, whatever. The movie version takes care of that by giving her to Snape, which we all like. Hooray. Yay. It was a hit. It was a hit. It was a hit. She made 140 pounds. That's 12,000 bones. From someone who couldn't who couldn't buy a new bonnet without asking for money. And so the publisher wanted something else immediately and wanted to pay for it, too. Hmm. He did. He paid her 110 pounds for a novel she had titled First Impressions. Although that year, another novel by a different writer had come out with the same title. 
So it was changed to Pride and Prejudice. So always have a second novel in your pocket, writers, in case the first one goes viral. That's right. And actually, because I'm at this stage, once you finish that first novel and you're ready and you're sending it out and trying to get representation and get it published, you should be working on the second one because it gives you something to obsess over instead of waiting for those rejection letters to come in. Well, Pride and Prejudice, just like now, was a slam dunk. People fell in love with Elizabeth Bennet, with Darcy, with Lydia's shocking behavior. Um, Henry, bless his heart, Henry, the loose cannon, couldn't help blabbing and bragging. Just a little, just among his nearest and dearest, but he did out her a little bit, and some people wanted to meet her and everything, and Jane was like, oh, I'm not an animal in a cage. I'm, like, freaking out a little bit. You know, ladies didn't really attract notice if they were genteel. But two massive hits, she began to work on Mansfield Park. Now, unlike the other novels, this one was written entirely at Chowton. Now, Mansfield Park. The public praised it. Morals, morality, principles, blah, blah, blah. I, on the other hand, stand with Mama and many nephews who hated Fanny Price (laughs) and greatly preferred Mary Crawford. Cassandra and all the brothers thought, well, why didn't she marry Henry Crawford? I don't like Edmund. Nobody was pleased with the whole ending, blah, blah, blah. Let's just say in this case... Brace yourself for a shocking, controversial opinion. I think the movie's better than the book. Yeah, I didn't I didn't dislike the movie. The book, Fanny, is too much for me. We'll talk about it later, but yeah. the publisher... I know, I'm so totally biting my tongue right now. I want credit for tongue biting. <laughs> <laughs> the publisher agrees with me and everyone. He asked her, you know, here he was. He paid for Pride and Prejudice, and he goes, mm, let's go back to the old arrangement where... We'll do this on commission. Yeah. Because <laughs> he didn't anticipate it selling out. He did sell out, but um, he actually didn't take the next one she, that she came out with, Emma, and had to go to a different publisher. She did, and Emma was kind of interesting in that um, it is dedicated to the Prince Regent. Reluctantly. Very reluctantly. She was, like, totally backed into it. He pretty much ordered it through his librarian and doctor to her to dedicate it, and she wrote this real flip little... I kind of had to do this. Here you go. And the publisher rewrote this effusive <laughs> dedication. It was like um, butt kissing on a grand scale, which I'm sure Jane Austen, did she roll her eyes completely all the way around? I don't really know. But a royal suggestion is um, the force of a command, really. So there it is. But Jane Austen was so happy. Can you imagine the independence this money, her own money at last is giving her? She had less than 50 pounds a year before, eked out as gifts and, and like, you know, charity from mm-hmm. people. An allowance. You don't like to feel like that. No. When you're a grown woman, you know. Yeah. When you're eight and you want to buy some Skylanders, sure. Yeah. But when you're a grown woman and you need underwear, you yeah. don't want to have to beg for the, the No. The best parts for her, she loved to give gifts and travel. And she loved to take her nieces, especially the oldest two, James's oldest and Edward's oldest, Anna and Fanny. She loved to surprise them with little things or little trips, and she got great joy out of that. And I love that, that she gets the money, and her first instinct is to spend it on other people. Out of the two aunts, Jane was known, here's the blow your mind again, as the sparkly, fun, lively one. And Cassandra was dull and prim, and like the Jane we all think we know. Mm-hmm. 
But think about any artist you know. They're delightfully off, aren't they? Yeah, oh, well, she would do stuff with the kids, and she would get down on the level and play card games with them and take them to watch a battleship being built, you know, and take them and do things with them. Kids love that. Yeah, Jane was described as being assorted degrees of delightful. It's just like, that's who she was. But poor old Cassandra, the domestically inclined, dutiful worker bee, Hufflepuffs don't even get due respect in Harry Potter. You know what I'm saying? We should really keep track, Beckett, of how many Harry Potter references we give in each podcast. J.K. Rowling's favorite author is Jane Austen. It kind of harkens back to a lot of things. So Jane kind of relished the pressure being taken off of her to be the focus at a ball and the marriage market and all this thing. And she's quoted as saying, As I must leave off being young, I find much sweetness in being a chaperone. I can sit on a sofa by the fire and drink as much wine as I like. Sounds like a lot of Facebook posts I read. (laughs) Actually. So... She took a little survey of her nearest and dearest about the time Emma came out, and her trusted readers, pretty much all of them, didn't really like it that much. They they said it's very inferior to Pride and Prejudice. Well, we can't all be Pride and Prejudice. And it's my favorite book. Emma? Emma is my favorite book. She made some sales, and she rescued old Northanger Abbey. She did. Still called Susan, Mm -hmm. then changed to Catherine, and put it on a shelf. So Jane Austen has four published and popular novels, an earlier one done, ready, halfway through a new one called The Elliots, which later became Persuasion, that's also on the shelf. She started feeling vaguely unwell. She did her joints would ache, she was tired a lot, and she started to get these odd skin color patches. Mm-hmm. Everything hurt, she couldn't get comfortable, she was... Her health was failing, and she wasn't that old, you know, not even 40 at this point. She refused, although she could barely tolerate walking in the garden, she refused to sink to the officially ill invalid thing. Her mother used to come in and take naps on the sofa. There was one sofa in their favorite drawing room, and Jane used to gather the chairs together on the other side of the room and put a blanket on that, and she would only lay down temporarily. Because she thought if she took possession of the sofa and she was sick, that her mother would stop using it, and therefore they would switch places, and Jane would be the weak and the looked after, and she didn't, she wasn't going to have it, so she constructed these chairs every day. Yeah, I wonder how much pain she she worked through quite a bit without sharing. She attributed her symptoms to bile, which is kind of a general. I have a general malaise. It must be bile. So she tried the waters, not at Bath, which she now loathed, but in Cheltenham with Cassandra at her side. That may have given her the idea for her last book that Cassandra named The Brothers. It didn't have a title. Later, much later, in 1923, was published as Sanditon, all about hypochondriacs and kind of a competition among a family, but there's not enough of it to know what she was going to do with it. Starts out awesome, but she never got further than 12 chapters. Um, Jane was struck down with attacks i mean and fevers she wrote in a letter my looks have been bad black and white and every other kind of color that's not good um she finally agreed to travel to be under a doctor's care and before she did she secretly wrote a will and leaving everything she had to cassandra with an exception two exceptions Mm -hmm. she left 50 pounds to henry for all his help in publishing and 
being faithful to her and everything. And then one other bequest to a servant that had been in Henry's house that had taken care of several members of the family. Now, the thing about this family is that they've been close all the time. It wasn't like a lot of families where somebody moves away and gets married and you never really see them again. They were always in each other's lives. And at this point, you know, when Jane is getting sick, her family really fussed over her. And she kind of loved it. She said, if I live to be an old woman, I most expect to wish that I had died now, blessed in the tenderness of such a family. Hmm. I know. Well, ultimately, the doctors near London were no more effective than anyone else. It may have been Hodgkin's disease. It had previously been thought to be Addison's disease, but that doesn't match up anymore with modern medicine. And Addison's, they believed that for quite quite some time. And you'll still find people that think that that's what it was. Actually, JFK had it, too. It's impossible to diagnose from this end of the history timeline, don't you think? Yeah, there's no way. Well, whatever it was, ultimately, on July 18th, 1817, Jane Austen died with Cassandra by her side. He was only 41. 41. Four published novels. And her mother, still being alive made you think that had this disease not come around, whatever it was, she might have had an equal amount of years ahead of her in which to write. So we might have lost great works of literature by her early death. Cassandra, however, had lost everything. Cassandra said, She was the son of my life, the giver of every pleasure, the soother of every sorrow. I had not one thought concealed from her, and it is as if I had lost a part of myself. So she's buried rather inexplicably in Winchester Cathedral. I don't understand that, really. But there she is in Winchester Cathedral along um, bishops and cardinals and people from the era of Beowulf. And that ends the all-too-short life of Jane Austen. But wait, there's more. Henry and Cassandra got Northanger Abbey in Persuasion, their titles, not Jane's, put out there and sales were good for a while and then it's almost like the whole thing went dormant. The books were, you know... So-so sellers, but she's no snappy old Dickens. I mean, she's too quiet. There's no car chases. There's no action sequences, if you know what I mean. There's no ghosts. Exactly. (laughs) The hipsters liked her, though. A certain segment of readers and writers almost used Do You Like Jane Austen as some kind of password to cool. George Eliot among them. In 1870, her nephew wrote a biography about her. The maiden, and so respectable, so domestic. She was just an amateur. Okay, the Victorians ate that crap up with a spoon. The Victorian cult of the home was in full swing, and that kind of idol was perfect for the times, helped along by the fact a good percentage of the letters that Jane wrote in her lifetime were destroyed by her family. Why was that? It's a quandary. Although not much of a quandary, given what we know about Jane. Uh, You know, there's inappropriate commentary in there that's not going to fit in with this Victorian ideal. I'm going to get this quote wrong because I don't have it in front of me, but she wrote that she just hated when people were amiable, then she found it much harder to dislike them. That's not a nice maiden sweet aunt. That's not sweet Jane. So two-thirds of Jane's papers showing the real her are gone. Could you just weep? Okay, so we are left with the vision of sweet Aunt Jane, and there she stays for quite some time. Virginia Woolf said, anyone who writes about Jane Austen is aware of two things. She's the most difficult to catch in the act of greatness, and there are 25 elderly gentlemen living in the neighborhood of London who resent any slight to her genius as if it is an insult to the chastity of their aunts. So she had her fanboys even way back. 
Time for another quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about Jane Austen's legacy and give you some media recommendations out of the nine jillion that we found out there. What's your favorite Jane Austen book? What's your favorite Jane Austen quote? Call us at 816-934-1234 and leave us a message. We can't exactly say that operators are standing by, but we do get excited when we hear your messages, and we would just love to hear any little nugget of gossip you'd like to share with us. Again, the number is 816-934-1234. Okay, so what is her legacy? Obviously, the six books... And their little cousin friends, the mm-hmm. juvenilia, and all the little accompaniment, unfinished works, etc. I must make the disclaimer that Jane Austen is not my favorite author. I have to second that. I'm sorry. I tried. Now, my favorite author is an author named Terry Pratchett. Um, but I do like Jane Austen's work quite a bit. And there are elements that Terry Pratchett's work and Jane Austen's work have in common. Stay with me. Okay. Jane Austen's books can be read on the surface. I mean, just read them on the surface as just mild stories with just a little adventure and a lot of conversation. You can read them that way and be perfectly satisfied and go away being cheerful and etc. But And his can be read as fantasy novels with trolls and vampires in them. But what they both are is social commentary and satire. If you're willing to apply some social overlay to it, it's the same exact kind of book. Believe it or not. I, I can see that. There is surprisingly little religion in any of these books for the daughter of a clergyman. She's not nice to clergymen. No. And we do have all these abbeys, you know, Donwell Abbey, Northanger Abbey, Downton Abbey. Yeah. Hey, that's not right. But believe me, that has more to do with Henry VIII than anything. He closed the abbeys and they turned yeah. into grand houses. That's all we got here. That's not a religious commentary. There's also very little politics. I mean, there's wars going on all around them. And, and the only references you get is the soldiers. So-and-so going off, but they don't really talk about the politics of it. Yeah, her sphere was... What happened at home while great events happened in the world? There's a quote from the movie, Emma, but not in the book. At a time when one's town was one's world, and the actions at a dance excited more interest than the movement of armies, there was a young woman who knew how this world should be run. That's what she knew. That's what she wrote about. They always tell you to write right, what, what you, you know. know about. Yep. So now we go to the other hard question, debatable. Is she a feminist? There are some lines in her books that seem so, and she had likely heard of Mary Wollstonecraft. She questions, fundamentally, the unquestionable assumption that any young lady is in want of a husband, any old husband. Um, she took up a profession in a time when that... You don't take up a profession. No, you're right. I'm um, and agreeing. Her, and her later work, which became Persuasion... And, you know, she didn't publish during her lifetime. There's a quote that applies to us, actually. Anne Elliot says, Men have had every advantage of us telling us their own story. Education has been theirs in so much higher a degree. The pen has been in their hands. I will not allow books to prove anything. She's basically saying, History's been written by men, and therefore, I'll discount that as any proof of men being superior. Quite interesting for yeah, her I'm thinking time. we should change that to our tagline. <laughs> Jane Austen herself said, Give a girl an education, 
and set her off properly into the world, and ten to one she has the means of settling well without further expense to anybody. But there is no framework in which you could call herself a feminist. I mean, as far as you could go then, you, you can. There were no bras to burn. There were no marches to march. But the seeds are there. The ideas are there. The hints are there, most definitely. It wasn't a thing. Mm-mm. There was no concept of it, Mm-mm. really. I mean, she was just smart thinking and thinking what should be right, but not making a political statement about right. it at all. So now we go to media. Now we're going to cover the movies in another episode. So we really aren't going to talk about them, other than to say there is a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of adaptations. They inspire other movies. There's a lot. So we're going to cover that in a, a totally separate episode. We do want to say that there is one coming out uh, this summer called Austin Land. Basically, Carrie Russell plays an Austin fan who vacations to a British 1800s Austin land. It's a living history resort. Like Manor House. Yes, where you dress the part, you get a role. Um, ah, kind of like when we went through the Titanic exhibit. You got a person and you were that person. Ooh, that sounds cool. Uh, yeah, kind of. Okay. I'm and so she that. gets to live. <laughs> she gets to live in Jane's world. It's a romantic comedy. So far, mixed reviews, but it's coming up. Well, I hope for the best. And then my favorite, said with extreme sarcasm, my favorite actress, Anne Hathaway, um, stars in a movie called Becoming Jane, which is basically Jane's life story told from a gentler, more personal perspective than you get it in a lot of the history books. So in that respect, I mean, it kind of brings her more into human scale, which I did like. Online, okay, we, for everything in this, we really had to narrow it down because there was no, there has been no subject that we've covered so much that we had so much to choose from as far as books go, as far as online resources go, we just have to narrow it down to the top couple that we see, but that is just the tip of the iceberg, and there's so much out there that you can discover, but starting with the Jane Austen Society of North America, um, J-A-S-N-A dot org, If you are into Jane Austen in any way, these are your people. They have, there's, I got lost on the site. I mean, it's one of those huge time sucks because you can start clicking and getting into all these different, there's a piece that was fascinating to me about how Steventon looked because it was destroyed. No one really knows. There's a couple sketches out there of it, but that's it. So it was diagrams and why this could be there and this would be there. It was pages. Just like a little quick thing. So you can totally get lost in there. But there's also Jane Austen societies in the UK, Australia, Melbourne, Buenos Aires, Brazil, and the Netherlands. So wherever you are, there's a Jane Austen society near you. Can I please give kudos to the Vermont chapter? I don't know if it's a chapter or a parsonage or what it is. They have an excellent, excellent, excellent page on carriages. And not only the carriages... And how many horses drew them and what kind of people, but they have timed out how long, for example, Fanny's journey from Mansfield Park to her family in Portsmouth would have taken, given the carriage that they took, etc. This is a level of detail not to be believed, so you'll have to go click the link. It's out there. You just need to start clicking. And if you would like to get out of your chair and into an airplane, or a car, if you're lucky enough to be nearby... And go on a pilgrimage for Jane Austen sites. SeekingJaneAustin.com can give you sites, itineraries, ticketing, 
All kinds of details that you would know to construct your own fabulous Austin Con of your own. This year is the 200th anniversary of Pride and Prejudice and all over the world there are celebrations going on. We'll give you a link in our show notes to get to prideandprejudice200.org.uk but depending on where you live, you might actually be able to go to one of these things. A lot of them are closed to Jane Austen Society of North America members, but a lot of them are open. And you have time to join up. You really. do. Oh, you do. You do. And there's um, there's one in Louisville in July. There's a ball, Beckett. We well, here's the thing. We do go to a house outside of there every July. And we typically go the second week of July. But this is the third week of July. I don't know what pressure I might put to bear. And I am not sure the Empire Waste is the most flattering look on me. In fact, I'm 100% sure it's not. But <laughs> here's something so cool that it transcends this fashion faux pas that will be the high waistband in my life. They, at the Louisville, Kentucky, July 20th and 21st event, are going to try to make the Guinness Book of World Records for the most people dressed in Regency attire. If you would like to be part of a Guinness World Record attempt while simultaneously being a history chick, this is the event for you. There's a ball. There's all kinds of stuff going on. If you're near Louisville, Kentucky, head on over. Also, in Lexington, Kentucky, there is the American Carriage Museum, which is an hour away. But you can make it a little day trip out of there. Probably be busy as heck during that week, though. Yeah. Um, Pemberley.com is your classic one-stop shop for all things Jane Austen. And I'm going to tell you, which I never, ever do, to use a wiki product, but WikiQuote has a whole series of quotes where you can see just how tart she is. While you're online, the Jane Austen House Museum, Chowton House, has been turned into a museum. And if you're there, go. It's where she wrote Mansfield Park, Emma and Persuasion, rewrote Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility in Northanger Abbey. But if you can't get there, there's a virtual tour. And, you know, there's nothing I love more than a virtual tour. So you can click your way through Jane Austen's house and see the table where she wrote in the gardens that her mom took care of. And Okay, now, here's two irreverent things that tickled our fancy. I'll give mine first. There is a video <laughs> called Jane Austen's Fight Club. I sat up of a night and laughed my hiney off, not believing what I was seeing. It's awesome. I highly agree that two and a half minutes of one's life is perfectly spent in the watching of said video, so we will provide you the link, and that is quite fabulous. And Susan has something that may offend the Janeites even more, but I also think is fabulous. It is. It's the Jane Austen drinking game. <laughs> and we'll link it, link you to the rules, which I have so thoughtfully printed out for Beckett and myself. Oh, dear. But <laughs> you take one drink if there's conceded independence, such as walking instead of taking a carriage. Oh, well. Take a drink. Two drinks if there's a loss of continence. Continence? Continence. Countenance! <laughs> <laughs> Please take two drinks. 
<laughs> Whatever beverage. Sounds like we already have. Anyway, we'll link you up to that. <laughs> oh, my okay. gosh. Okay. Uh, no, bringing it on back down. Bringing it yep. on back down. Uh, let's see. Let's talk about books. Oh, yes. And in this, and in yeah. so many regards, we have to nail down our preferences Ugh. and narrow them down because honestly my goodness there's a stack here that would just defy gravity really and i left a great number of mine at home we could use it as an end table yes there is so much to choose from just choose i'll go first um and we i told becca to narrow it down to two she couldn't uh so why well, there, i okay. have three there so we've decided to narrow it down to three <laughs> First up is The Friendly Jane Austen by Natalie Tyler. This was recommended by our friend Jill as a very good place to start. It's very detailed, side stories, synopsises of the novel. It's easily read. Um, I, I did enjoy it. The second one that I enjoyed, and Beckett and I kind of disagree on this one, but I'll just tell you. It's a, it's a YA book. It's called Jane Austen, A Life Revealed by Catherine Reeve. It's just, there's a lot of white <laughs> <laughs> nice big font. Um, it's easy. It's an easy read. It's a YA book. And the third one that I really kind of enjoyed is called The Bedside Bathtub and Armchair Companion to Jane Austen by Carol Adams, Douglas Buchanan, and Kelly Gesh. Again, it's kind of set up a little bit like To Marry an English Lord and that there's sidebars and small essays on different aspects of Jane's life. Okay, if you want the easy reads, get the ones that I suggest. If you want a little more deep, <laughs> there's Beckett. Okay, well let's start with the deepest, shall we? A book with the, uh, that good old smell of library book. It's from 1913, this issue. I'm sure it's been reprinted, but this book is basically a reprinting of the 1870 biography, adding some letters they found in the interim, which is pretty cool, by William Austin Lee and Richard Arthur Austin Lee. It's very interesting to read her letters, just like, you know, all the letters they found in order with some explanations, and man, this smells Taste me on back. I really, really love this book. It's got all these stamps in it being checked out in 32. It's checked out in 20, 28. That's a I really mean, great looking book. Man, it's so neat. The overdue fine is stamped in here. You must pay two cents a day. You should hold them to that. Dang. I, if I could only keep my fines to two cents a day. Now, this is a book I've had for a long time. It's another one of my decrepit, bent, disrespected books, and I love it so. It's by Daniel Poole. It's called What Jane Austen Ate and Charles Dickens Knew, From Fox Hunting to Whist, The Facts of Daily Life in 19th Century England. Uh, it's very interesting. It has all kinds of things about houses with names. What do those mean? The position of the governess. Disease, which we cover a lot. And then it has an index in the back, like a glossary. What does this mean? When the heck is Michaelmas, anyway? Well, you'll have to read the back. And the biography I like the best that fits more with my style of reading than, you know, the actual Austen relations, lovely as they are, is a book called Jane Austen, A Life by Claire Tomlin. So, you know, about 300 pages, and it's it's really humanizing. Um, I think it's quite awesome, and I highly recommend it, picking it up. And so... That is the life of Jane Austen, a life that was cut too short by far. Her brother Henry once said that my dear sister's life was not a life of events, 
but I think he was wrong, small events and an infinite number of them, which she preserved forever in her books, touch every single one of us in a different way. Kind of like when you listen to songs on the radio after a breakup and every song seems to be about you. There are parts of Jane Austen's books that complete you or fill your mind in ways that might change as you grow older and are universal to everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at thehistorychicks with an X, or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like us in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. Thank you.